Welcome to the Fordham IPLJ Podcast with your online editor, Anthony Zingrillo. This week, I am joined by staff member Matt Hershkowitz and special guest Mike Schuster, assistant professor, Oklahoma State University Spears School of Business. Hey, guys. Hi, Mike. Thank you a lot for uh, speaking with us today. I've read some of your writings about rent-seeking and inter-parties review proceedings, uh, specifically the, the uh, papers you wrote in the Michigan Telecommunications and Technolo- Technology Law Review and the Wake Forest Law Review. Uh, what can you tell me about it generally? Okay. Well, I started looking at the inter-parties review system, the IPR system, that began in 2012 as part of the America in Invents Act. Now, this is an administrative action before the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, which is part of the USPTO. This is a way whereby pretty much anyone can attempt to have the Patent Trial and Appeal Board look at the validity of a patent. If they find that it was not novel or it was obvious at the time it was granted, the patent will be invalidated. This occurs by a party going to the PTAB, the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, filing a petition explaining exactly why the patent is not valid. The patent owner can then file an optional preliminary response, but if the PTAB finds that there's a reasonable likelihood that the patent will be invalidated at some point, they'll grant it, and you have then a mini-trial whereby the parties argue back and forth of whether or not the patent is valid, and if it's shown by a preponderance that the patent is invalid, it's taken off the books. The records associated with this proceeding will eventually come out as public such that you or I can inspect them. Now, this was actually created to be a less expensive and faster alternative to litigating the validity of a patent. Around that time, if you were going to attack a patent's validity, you either needed to use the much maligned re-examination proceeding or you needed to engage in litigation, which is costly and time-intensive. Around then, there was a lot of concern about nuisance value patent trolls asserting patents of questionable validity. For a nuisance value patent troll, validity really isn't that important because they simply want to extract a below-the-cost-of-litigation settlement early in the suit. So I think that was a large part of why we had the IPR system to be created. Okay, Mike. Um... What are invalidity assertion entities, also known as IAEs? Okay, well, these guys are actually an unexpected response from the creation of the IPR system. The IPR system, like I said, was supposed to be used as an alternative to litigation. But many people didn't expect was that people would come forward and use the IPR system for rent-seeking endeavors. There's these parties that I call Invalidity Assertion Entities, IAEs. You may have heard them called PTAB trolls. And they identify patents in litigation that they think are valuable and susceptible to validity attacks. They then draft an IPR petition and they send it over to the patent holder with the threat that, hey, you know that patent that you're currently asserting in litigation? Well, if you don't give us some consideration, we're going to file this IPR petition and attempt to invalidate your patent. They may demand cash. They may demand retroactive licenses such that they can then sell them to the parties that are being sued. 
Now, one of the first examples that we know of of IAE activity is a company called Iron Dome. Iron Dome targeted a patent troll, NPE, PAE, whatever you'd like to call them, called Chinook Licensing. And they said, hey, we're going to file this IPR petition if you don't give us three retroactive licenses, presumptively that they would then sell for cash. Well, Chinook didn't take well to this. They, first off, refused to pay the settlement, in which led Iron Dome to go off and file the IPR petition. But Chinook came back and went a step further. Beyond not paying the demanded consideration, they went and sued Iron Dome in federal court. They alleged RICO violations. They alleged tortious interference, a handful of different things. That case would end up being thrown out on a motion to dismiss. It didn't go anywhere. But this just shows us how the IAE business form will actually proceed. Mike, how, how can the um, IAEs bring these actions for IPR? Well, you have to remember this isn't in the judiciary. We don't have this standing requirement for a case or controversy. The standing requirements before the PTAB for IPR are very lenient. The only requirement as it presently stands is that you haven't had the patent asserted against you more than a year ago. So if you were to sue me for patent infringement, I would have the next year to seek IPR, but after that I couldn't. But that's the only standing requirement. So we can have IAEs that have literally no business interest in the relevant patent that have perfectly clear standing to file for inter-parties review of that patent. So where do we stand with IAEs today? Specifically, where are we with current legislation regarding IAEs? Well, not surprisingly, you had this knee-jerk response to do away with IAEs. You think of rent-seeking in the patent realm, and it comes with pretty negative memories. You're thinking of patent trolls. Most folks don't think particularly fondly of patent trolls. Now, right now, we really don't know a ton about IAE activity. We're really not completely certain where they stand, if it's particularly broad or not. We've seen recent studies, I think it was Berkeley's Technology Law Journal that said about 30% of IPR petitioners aren't currently being sued. So this might include a large group of IAEs, or it might not. I know that viewing, viewing the issue from an economic perspective, Hovenkamp and Lemieux, I hope I'm saying his name right, said they don't expect IAEs to be particularly widespread. Now, this still didn't stop Congress from proposing to do away with IAEs by statute. There have been a few proposals that didn't pass in recent years that would create a standing requirement for inter-parties review that's essentially the same as if you wanted to file a declaratory action in district court. You'd have to have some actual tie to the patent to file for IPR. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw further proposals of this nature. However, we haven't seen anything pass at this point in time. What, why do you think it would be advisable for, uh, for Congress to wait? Okay, and this is something I talked about in the 
Michigan article is that I think there are several different reasons that it might be prudent to go ahead and slow down on proposed legislation to do away with IAEs. First off, like I said, we don't know a great deal about the scope of IAE activity. It's a folly to go off and do away with something we don't know anything about. So let's see if this becomes an actual problem or could actually create socially beneficial externalities, as we'll talk about in a little bit. Let's wait and see before we go off and end the business model. And by doing so, we would end up creating other unforeseen possible actions that we don't know if those will be good or bad. And then we've also talked about IAEs, by their very nature, invalidate patents. They have to do this to create their reputation such that people are going to be willing to settle with them such that they can bring in income. Well, we know that weak or invalid patents, they create an unjustified deadweight economic loss. Essentially, they're getting a monopoly, but they aren't adding anything new to the state of technology. Well, IAEs, to create their reputation, have to take these invalid patents off the books. This does away with those economic losses. Also, to the extent that that invalid patent is currently being litigated, we create additional efficiencies by avoiding future losses in the shape of defense costs to defend against allegations of infringement. Second, there's also been a concern about weak invalid patents being litigated. To the extent that IAEs are targeting weak patents, this actually disincentivizes the assertion of weak patents, thus again creating a potential social good. So I think that it would be prudent to go ahead and wait and see, are IAEs actually going to become part of the patent landscape? Or are they going to be so minimal that they're simply not worth taking the time to legislate about? So why is there so little information about IAEs and their settlements availability? Okay, well like I said, we really don't know the scope of IAE activity. So we can look at the fact that we really don't have a lot of IAE settlements or a lot of information about them from a couple of different perspectives. First, it's possible there simply aren't a great deal of IAEs out there. Like I said, it's been asserted that they might not come out in large numbers such that they would actually matter. Second, it's also possible that IAEs just keep their activities confidential, or at least their settlements confidential. There are a couple different reasons that this might happen. If you are an IAE target, a patent holder, who is willing to settle with them, you're going to want to keep that settlement confidential for a couple of different reasons. First, they don't want the news to get out that they are willing to settle with IAEs. If it did, they're going to be the target of more IAEs. They see that they're a willing mark. Second, those parties that settle need to maintain the, sec the secrecy of the threatened petition. Because if they don't, another IAE could use that petition immediately to challenge them again, and they might have to pay a second or a third or a fourth settlement to avoid the exact same arguments. So secrecy would be really important for these type of parties 
and they probably wouldn't settle without a pretty broad confidentiality clause. So, Mike, I know that um, patent trolls are believed to assert weak patents. How do IAEs and patent trolls interact? Okay, so, like I said earlier, IAEs have a lot of reasons that they're going to want to target weak patents. Those are the parties that are going to be most willing to pay the settlement upon which the IAE business model depends. Now, I've actually talked about how IAEs interact with patent trolls much more generally in the Wake Forest article that you mentioned earlier. And I think that IAEs are actually going to be incentivized to disproportionately target patent trolls. Now, to see how this argument goes, we actually have to take a step back and identify a few different characteristics of likely IAE targets. First, like I said, IAEs are going to be likely to target patents asserting weak, probably invalid patents. Second, they're probably going to want to target patents that are in potentially big payday lawsuits. Those parties will have the greatest to lose, therefore they're going to have the greatest interest in paying to avoid IPR. Third, they're going to be incentivized to target patents that are being asserted in litigation that actually might be stayed. Some judges are willing to stay lawsuits pending inter-parties review. Well, plaintiffs don't like this. They're going to want to avoid inter-parties review in the associated stay under the old standard that justice delayed is justice denied. Well, what types of cases are most likely to be stayed? It's going to be where the plaintiff and the defendant aren't actually competitors, as is the case with most patent troll lawsuits. Fourth, we want to see that IAEs are most likely to target cases or patents that are being asserted in cases against many small defendants. There are collective action problems with many small defendants such that they might not actually file for IPR by themselves such that an IAE's threat of IPR carries more weight. And then lastly, they're going to be incentivized to target lawsuits filed by repeat defendants. We're going to see that if an IAE is going to spend the time and the money to create this reputation as someone who will invalidate their patent, they want to maximize the impact of that. Well, if you are able to scare a single party into thinking that you are a true threat and they're a repeat defendant, a repeat plaintiff, you're able to continually go back to that well every time they file and you demand another settlement. So how do these incentives and these characteristics actually match up with patent trolls or NPEs, whatever you'd like to call them, very well? Literature is going to tell us that one or more variety of trolls have pretty much all of these characteristics. They commonly assert weak patents. They recover above average amounts of money when they are successful. We see that trolls aren't competitors with their defendants and therefore stay is most likely in those type of cases. We've seen that patent trolls are increasingly suing large groups of small defendants. And lastly, by their very nature, patent trolls are repeat litigants. So these all match up with aspects of parties that 
the IAE would want to target. So what does this mean? What does this matter? Well, if IAEs are going to target patent trolls, this ends up creating additional costs for patent trolls to the extent that some of their patents are invalidated, this drives down income. And then lastly, by doing both of these things, this disincentivizes the contingency attorney who commonly represents patent trolls from wanting to take these cases. So we have created a host of problems for patent trolls such that some of your more middle of the road, you know, might make a little bit of money patent troll lawsuits now might not be filed. Now I'm not saying that IAEs are going to end the patent troll phenomenon, but I do think that it's possible that they may disincentivize it, that they may call off some of the lower tier lawsuits that might be filed. But what stops the IAEs from using the IPR to extract nuisance settlements from corporations? Well, we could say what's to stop the IAE from going off and doing exactly what patent trolls do. Just saying, hey, I'm going to attack you and I am willing to settle for less than it's going to cost you to defend against my allegations. Well, I don't think that this approach actually works for IAEs. I don't think we're going to see that they just start attacking every patent that's in litigation. In order to understand this, I think we have to look at what would happen if an IAE were to attack a strong patent. Well, first off, that IAE has to invest a substantial amount of money and time in putting together an inter-parties review petition. Then they approach the strong patent owner. And that patent owner has to ask himself, okay, do I want to settle here? Well, they're going to say, how much is it going to cost to get out of this, to defend my patent? Well, assuming their patent is actually strong, all they're going to have to do to avoid invalidation is to prevent the inter-parties review from actually being initiated. You remember I said to initiate an IPR, the petitioner has to show that there's a reasonable likelihood that a patent, or at least a part of the patent, will be invalidated. If the patent really is strong, then all the patent owner has to do is avoid this reasonable likelihood, and that's not going to cost them a great deal of money to do. Now, we're still probably talking tens of thousands of dollars, but relative, it's not a great amount of money. Now, all this time, we've seen that the IAE has been investing time and money drafting their petition, paying $9,000 to file the petition. They are incurring a lot of cost on the front end, and now they're coming up against a target that really doesn't have a great incentive to settle with them, or at least not for much money. Therefore, I really don't think that that nuisance value business model for IAEs works. Like I said, I think the incentive structure is actually more likely to lead them to target parties like patent trolls. Well, thanks, Mike, for uh, answering all of our questions, and I really enjoyed talking to you. We appreciate you coming on the uh, podcast. Um, I also really enjoyed reading your, your two papers in the Michigan Telecommunications and Technology Law Journal and in the Wake Forest Law Review. So uh, thank you very much, and uh, I, we appreciate you being here. All right, guys. It's been my pleasure, and thank you for the time. Thank you.